0: If you're enjoying these podcasts and are interested in learning how to build an AI startup or pilot an AI product within your organization, I have created a six-step framework and a process guide. The framework will help you avoid the costly mistakes and the process lays out how to go from learning the fundamentals to piloting the product week by week. If it interests you, it's available on our website for free. My hope is that it will help you start off on the right foot.
1: So anywhere in an organization where you have people sitting and looking at images all day long just to see stuff, you shouldn't anymore, right? You should be using deep learning. Anywhere where you have rooms of people reading documents just to find stuff, you shouldn't anymore, right? (laughs) Anywhere where you have people looking at data streams to find new trends, you shouldn't anymore, right? Because these algorithms can do a better job of finding those patterns.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to Brains Behind AI, a show where we meet the innovators, entrepreneurs, and the real brains behind some of the most successful AI startups. We ask them about their journey from coming up with the idea to finding the product market fit. And from their experience, draw a set of principles that we can take away to ours. This is your host, Ari. Thank you for spending time with us. And now, let the show begin. Ladies and gentlemen, I couldn't be more excited to have with us today, Dr. Chris Bouton. Chris is the founder and CEO at Viasa, a deep learning startup out of Boston. Previously, Chris founded Antigen, an analytics startup, which was acquired by Thomson Reuters in 2013. Computational biologist by training with a PhD in neuroscience from John Hopkins. Chris, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Chris, before we start and get into Viasa, can you take us through your background and how it prepared you for your entrepreneurial journey from antigen to YASA now?
1: Sure, absolutely. I started out with a passion for sharks and got interested in uh, marine biology. And then from there, I got interested in molecular biology and got to do a summer at Jackson Laboratory up in Bar Harbor. From there, I uh, went to Johns Hopkins for grad school, got interested in computational biology, and then ultimately decided to uh, found a company. Kind of a circuitous journey.
0: What made you start a company? What made you form a company? How did that happen? Was there any driving factor or pull there?
1: I was working at a large pharma at the time, and I was interested in the range of ways in which I thought we could do a better job of tying data together. And I just got interested in Trying to do that on my own and building a company around this idea of data integration, and there's something that's sort of a leap that happens at some point where you just decide to go do it. In fact, I was at a friend's house right after I had made the leap. There was a Zen koan on their fridge, and the Zen koan was "Leap, and the net will appear." I saw that and I was like, "Oh, okay. There's going to be a net somewhere around here." <laughs> but but at some point, you just have to make the leap and, and give it a shot, right? go after what you're, you're interested in doing. So that's what I did.
0: That's a beautiful quote. When it came to Ayasa, how did that idea happen? And what made you go into it with Full Force as a startup?
1: So for Viasa, the thing that was so amazing about that moment in time for me was there was this confluence of factors that had to do with the hype cycle around uh, deep learning AI. And me wanting to understand whether it was all hype or whether there was actually something really interesting and new with these deep learning algorithms. And so as I started to dive in, I started to realize that these algorithms are based on neural networks. And my background, my PhD, was in molecular neurobiology, and, and one of the reasons that I got interested there was because of my interest in neural networks. So all of a sudden it, it felt like this confluence of factors of like, wait, I could form a company based on algorithms that have to do with neural networks, and do data analytics for the life sciences space. (laughs) So all of those things together were so compelling that I was like, I just have to do this. It was my second startup. I had been lucky enough to build and then ultimately exit a first company. It just so happened that I decided to uh, give it another shot, do it again.
0: Was it easier the second time around? I would say it's
1: different. I wouldn't say easier. I'd say very little about being an entrepreneur and, and running a startup is easy. Uh,
0: <laughs> you you <laughs> wake up
1: every day. You run as fast as you can. You go to sleep. You do it again. Right. It's really about learning the particular rhythms and patterns of each company because each company is different, and what you're doing in that company, uh, how you're doing it, all of those things change on a moment to moment basis. So yeah, I wouldn't say easier. I would say that I was more experienced, right? I had a better understanding of what I might face on any given day. But hey, the most important thing is that you wake up every day. And and if you're still having fun doing it, and if it's still exciting, and if you still have passionate about it, then that's all that you really need. So that's very much the case. I I love doing this.
0: You looked at the application of neural networks here and life sciences and ability to apply deep learning and your background in neuroscience, and you thought that was interesting, but where did you see a business opportunity? Did you see that there is an opportunity to disrupt or transform or change how things are being done today? How did that realization happen, and what is the opportunity that you see?
1: Deep learning algorithms are a novel type of tool in our toolkit, right? They're not the end-all, be-all. They're not the only tool that we need going forward, but they are a new tool. And so the, the fundamental question to start was, where can we apply these tools? And in particular, where can we apply them in the life sciences space? And in general, these tools are quite powerful in many places, right? But it's really about that specialization in the life sciences that got me interested And so what we've seen is that these algorithms require specialization to their particular tasks, quite in the same way that many other technologies that have have come to the fore are require this same kind of specialization. The key sort of aspect of our activities at Vyasa have been around specialization of the use of these tools to particular life sciences tasks, right? Whether it's text analytics for repurposing to image analytics for manufacturing efficiencies, to uh, small compound analytics for toxicity prediction, right? Each of those areas is very specialized and requires an understanding of both the space and the tool to do a good job at it. So that's really what we're doing.
0: When you started, did you pick one area, one niche to focus on, or was your focus Here's deep learning. Let's try to apply deep learning to multiple use cases and see how they evolve.
1: We started more with the latter approach than the former. The reason is that the algorithms themselves are actually relatively general. And it's really what you train them on that defines their capability once trained. The first question was where does this training of these algorithms provide the biggest advantage, right? Where are these algorithms the most effective if you use them for a particular task? And so it's it's taken a number of years to really learn where to apply them. Along the way, another really sort of important aspect of what we've done is realize that we needed an entirely new kind of data architecture to feed these algorithms. So a core of what we've built at ViaSa is something called a data fabric. We call it layer. And what the data fabric does is allows us to handle many different forms of raw data at scale, and then allow the algorithms to uh, run against this raw data across the data fabric. We kind of had to learn all of that. As we were learning it, we were realizing where these algorithms are valuable. And each area, each kind of content set is a little bit different. So in the text analytics space, BERT modeling turns out to be a really powerful new way of using deep learning for text analytics in the image analytics space, convolutional neural nets, do certain kinds of things like classification and object recognition in a much more powerful way than what was previously possible. So it was really about about learning those areas, figuring out where they're applicable in the life sciences space and figuring out how to do the data um, (laughs) scalability and storage. So there's a, a lot of factors together to bring us to where we are today.
0: How long did it take you to go from, say, experimentation in a sandbox to point where you say, okay, I have something that I can take to market or I can take to pharma and life sciences company and introduce?
1: It's easily been two years worth of working on these things, understanding use cases, building out the tech. Along the way, we we have been running projects, but I think that the Basically everybody is is starting to learn where these things are applicable, and something like BERT modeling is so new and so different from what's been possible previously in the text analytics space that it still takes a lot of time for people to understand what's different about it from these traditional approaches. And it turns out the traditional approaches and the and the new deep learning approaches are quite synergistic, but it's it's about understanding where the where they work together where the the novel capabilities are that these kinds of things so uh, it takes time
0: yeah and it's not an easy problem to solve so while you're building this out how how are you funding this are you vc funded or is it self-funded that's one and then two how are you finding and retaining talent in the boston's competitive market
1: yeah no great questions we're lucky enough to be privately funded it's what I did in the antigen days. It's what I'm doing this time around. I have a ton of respect for VCs and they're incredible connectors, they're incredible advisors. And I know many VCs, talk with many VCs all the time, but um, I'm also just familiar with the process of, of building a company without VC funding. So that's what we're doing again. And as we're doing that, we are running projects uh, with clients. And uh, we'll continue to do so, and so that's sort of where we're at right now.
0: It seems like you have this consulting arm where you have projects that are keeping the lights on, so to speak, while you're building this amazing deep learning product.
1: Yeah, I would I would call us a tech enabled services business at this point. There's solutions that we've developed. Those solutions are powerful and new. It's what we've spent the last three years building, finding ways of applying. Those types of solutions to to clients' problems is a key part of the services portion of things. There's also this really important conversation that's happening and learning that's happening around what these deep learning algorithms are capable of. And the easiest place to do that kind of work is in, in a services type context. It's always a conversation around like how they're applicable, uh, how they're useful and then how our particular solutions enable some of the stuff that clients want to do.
0: And I can see the synergistic relationship where the learnings can feed the product and vice versa.
1: Absolutely. I think everyone is still coming to grips with or are starting to learn about what the capabilities of these things are. And so there's absolutely this continuous learning of use cases, technology, business, all of it all at the same time.
0: Are you focused just on, it seems like, there's a lot of work being done in the life sciences. So are you focused just on life sciences or are you also opening your product to other industries?
1: Uh, Yeah, at this time, we're specialized in the life sciences and healthcare space. Uh, Like I mentioned, the work in applying these algorithms really has to do with understanding the data type and understanding what you want the algorithm ultimately to be able to do. Uh, One of the things that's so different about these algorithms is that what you train them on ultimately turns out to be what they're capable of doing. It's almost like if you have two baby brains and you, you train one of them in the Spanish language and one of them in the English language, by the time you're done training them, one of them knows how to speak Spanish and one of them knows how to speak English, right? But when they started out, they could have learned any language. It's really important to know what you want them to be able to do at the end of their training And then also how to continue to refine and and update and enable further training. So all of that requires specialization. And for that reason, we're specialized in the life sciences space.
0: Within life sciences, as you launch these products, how are you validating the market? And what have you learned to date as you've brought your offering to the market, to biopharma?
1: Yeah, I think that the, the validation comes from those scenarios in which a client says wait you can do that with these algorithms <laughs> and you say yeah no that, that's kind of like what you know what we're what we're seeing is valuable here and they say well, well, well yeah <laughs> and the thing that's so powerful about deep learning is that you can train these algorithms on what kinds of patterns you want to find in your data but they figure out how to find those patterns And that sounds really simple, it turns out to be incredibly powerful because in the history of humans using computers prior to these algorithms, we have told the computer how to find the pattern. What that means is that humans often don't know exactly how to find the pattern or they don't have a full understanding of it. And so they tell the machine about a subset of all possible ways to find the pattern. And what that means is that we often previously missed stuff, missed information that was valuable. With deep learning, you let the machine go and figure out what's useful in finding the pattern. And that means that they're much more capable of doing a a better job of finding patterns in data. That is coinciding with a time period in humanity where the amount of data that we're working with is just exponentially increasing. And so All of a sudden, we need for machines to be able to sift through information much more effectively than what was previously possible. And that's exactly what these algorithms can do. So anywhere in an organization where you have people sitting and looking at images all day long just to see stuff, you shouldn't anymore, right? You should be using deep learning. Anywhere where you have rooms of people reading documents just to find stuff, you shouldn't anymore. Right? Anywhere where you have people looking at data streams to find new trends, you shouldn't anymore, right? Because these algorithms can do a better job of finding those patterns. Of course, once you've used an algorithm to find an, a pattern, you want a human to actually validate, okay, yep, it found the right pattern. But you can identify these things at scale, at a much greater scale, by using one of these algorithms than was previously possible. And that's that's really at the heart of what's so exciting about these things.
0: I agree. As you have taken this journey and as you're doing this amazing work here, what are some of the challenges that you're running into? And by challenge, I mean, whether it was building the product out or whether it's getting the buy-in from from the consumption standpoint, what has that journey been? And can you give us an example of a challenge that you encountered that made you rethink or reevaluate what you have?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'd say our biggest challenge is the hype cycle. There has been so much talk about AI that, first of all, you have to talk about what you really mean by AI, what's different, because you know, AI, the idea of artificial intelligence has been around for as long as a computer has been sitting in the corner and some humans said, I wonder if that thing will think like me, right? (laughs) Um, You know, Frank Rosenblatt in the 1950s was building the Mark I perceptron as a neural network, and he filled an entire room with wires, you know, to try and do this stuff. It didn't work because uh, he just didn't have enough computing power. But these ideas have been around for a very long time. And so the initial sort of part of the hype cycle has been just figuring out what's different now. And what's different now is that we're actually experiencing something like a perfect storm of having gone through the big data phase. And now we have enough data to train these models. We also have novel GPU architectures that are much more powerful than rooms full of wires. (laughs) We have novel algorithm development and we have novel software open source stacks that we can use as sort of the foundational elements of what we're So all of these things have come together right now, and that's really what is um, fueling this new round of interest in AI. So first, you have to get through the idea that there really is something new and different here. Then you have to get through the idea of like, well, what do you really mean by AI? And so that's actually why I say deep learning AI or deep learning almost all the time to try and make sure that I'm being very specific about what I'm talking about as the new tech And then you have to get through the idea that people just say like, hey, I don't really believe that these things do anything new or different, right? So then you have to talk about what's actually new and different about them and what they can do in the context of an organization that is more powerful than what's been done previously. And so all of these things are a conversation that happens with a client in order to identify like, okay, yeah, there's actually an opportunity here to do something valuable. So that's been our biggest challenge. Once you get to the other side of that, Once you demonstrate what these algorithms can actually do, then you usually see people's light eyes light up and they say, Oh, okay. Now can we do that over here too? And you say, Yep, we could do that too. (laughs) It's a process. It's a process and a conversation.
0: Yep. So it's, and that's what I'm learning too from my experience. It's the education that's, that takes precedence over anything else. I totally agree with you on that. Now, as you look towards the future, and especially in the biopharma industry, because the industry seems to be lagging from what we have seen. We have seen the returns on R and D investments significantly go down year over year. Peak sales go down. We have seen even the ROI on the dollar invested in a pharma over three year basis or, or five year basis is significantly lower, which is, which is challenging the value proposition of the biopharma in general And i do believe that's where deep learning and that's where artificial intelligence can come in and play a role as someone on the front line who is building these deep learning models for the biopharma what do you see the future and how do you see deep learning and ai playing into transforming biopharma as an industry
1: that's a great question i mean i think that one of the things that's so exciting about these algorithms is that there is that there's so many different places where they can be applied And so I think that the first thing that the industry as a whole can do is just remain open to the idea of innovation. You know, in my experience in the industry, we see this almost sort of pendulum swing effect or cyclical effect between innovation and then sort of conservation, right? (laughs) Conservative tendency. And you sort of see the industry as a whole sort of swinging back and forth between these two ways of being. I think, though, in general, remaining open to innovation, remaining open to novel technologies and how they can be applied is really important in our space. Given what's going on in the world right now, I've never had a greater and firmer belief in the importance of scientific research for humanity. And it's so fundamentally important for scientific research in the life sciences to continue to innovate because of how important our industry is for the whole extent of humanity, right? <laughs> and so remaining open to the innovation, remaining open to the idea that novel technologies can find a place of importance in what we're doing going forward in uh, specific terms, you know, f- specifically for deep learning, first understanding what these algorithms are good at, and then identifying all the different places within the drug discovery process where these algorithms can be applied, I think it's going to be a really important activity that happens over, you know, I'd say even the next decade, because there's so many different places where they can be applied. So it's an exciting time. I think we're just getting started with it. And I think that it's, um it's going to be really cool to see about, you know, all the different places where we can apply this stuff.
0: So if you were to give a message to the industry leaders, say, who are listening to this podcast right now, what would, Do you say, what role can they play and what can they do short term to make sure they're leveraging this the way they should?
1: Yeah, I think I would sort of reiterate that piece about remaining open to innovation, right? The ability for pharma, for life sciences organizations, biotech, to continuously adopt and identify the value of novel technologies in the course of their operations is the lifeblood of becoming more and more efficient at the development of novel therapeutics. And so I think that a lot of that happens through sort of POC type engagements where these larger companies bring in small startups and say, all right, you know, what can you guys do? (laughs) And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. But if you're not continuously experimenting, if you're not continuously innovating and researching what's possible on the sort of the cutting edge of things, then you're not aware of where those things are applicable in these larger organizations. So that's, I think the key is, is to remain open to, to innovation like that.
0: Yeah, you, you bring a good point. And, and POCs are important. One of the places where i see them struggle is they will do a proof of concept but taking the proof of concept and operationalizing it and making it real where actual businesses using it is is hard right there is this gap that exists between the poc side and the actual consumption do you have any advice for them on how they can bridge that gap quickly and faster where if the pocs are successful and the learnings are validated How can they operationalize it quickly?
1: Yeah, that's a great, great point. And and certainly something I've experienced on both sides of the the desk there is how to make sure that we do the best job possible of taking these things forward if they're successful. One thing that I've seen happen that is is valuable is making sure that there are uh, a number of stakeholders involved in the POC process. because. Often it's the case that a single individual within that larger organization becomes the primary point of contact in the context of a POC. And when that happens, that person can get pulled in a number of different directions. That person can have a certain sort of take on what's happened in the POC. And if you don't have other stakeholders also involved, then it can easily fall apart. If you do have a number of stakeholders, then what happens is it might be that one person says, ah, it's not that interesting, but you know, two other people take it forward, right? So there's greater opportunity to move these things to the next stage if you have a number of stakeholders on the, the side of the client running the POC so that they can identify where it's potentially valuable. And each of them is also going to have a different take on where that value might reside, right? I don't know if that solves all, all POC uh, transition challenges, but it's it's one thing that I've seen work.
0: It's a step in the right direction. So I'm looking at the clock here. It seems like we're almost at time here. So before we wrap up, Chris, do you want to share your contact information? If our audience wants to find you, what would be the best place to reach you if you have a Twitter handle or a website?
1: Sure. Sure. Absolutely. I can be reached on our website, just fiasa.com. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn and i'm um, happy to follow up with anybody who has more questions and uh and have these kinds of conversations it's uh thank you so much for putting this podcast together it's it's really um fun to be able to talk with you about this stuff
0: yeah thank you chris it was a pleasure having you so thank you for taking the time out it was much appreciated
1: absolutely thank you you well.
0: thank you so much for being here today if you like what you heard and are interested in more Visit us online at brainsbehind.ai and sign up for my monthly AI startup tracker. That's where I cut through the noise and bring you AI startups that are making tangible progress. Till next time, go out, be the brains behind AI.